Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode four, and we're at the point where the first farmers arrived in Southern Africa 2,000 years ago. As we know now, prior to this event, there was broad cultural continuity in hunter-gatherer groups growing back at least another 10,000 years. The movement of farmers into the eastern summer rainfall areas in the first 1,000 years AD took place as the climate stabilized. The ancestors of these first farmers domesticated sorghum and millet in the Sahel, north of the equator, and then brought their new skills southwards as they migrated. When Bantu-speaking people arrived in southern Africa, they integrated at times with the local population, the San and Khoi. This is proven by the incorporation of the hunter-gatherer cliques in both Isizulu and Isikosa. You don't assimilate parts of foreign languages without adopting something of their culture. We heard last episode how important pottery has been in tracking what happened and when. On the basis of the style of pottery, three separate streams of movement into South Africa have been investigated. They're known as the Philipson's Chivumbasu Complex and is the research into deposits of shards of pottery that represent these migrating people traveling and living from place to place on the landscape. Two of the streams have a common origin in East Africa and they're known as the Urewe Tradition. The least controversial of the three is called the Kwale branch, linked to two phases. One was the silver leaves, dating between 250 AD and 430, and the second, Mzunjani, between 420 AD and 580. The pioneer phase involving these agriculturalists was centered on the coastal plains of southern Africa, and many were found in present-day KwaZulu-Natal, particularly around the Tugela River. Here, the Mzunjani settlements are distributed in a line along the coast, and none are more than six kilometers from the beach. All these settlements had another trait. They were easily cleared of the forest cover, and the sandy soils produced brief outbursts of agriculture, indicating the people were moving from place to place. The third trait was these settlements were also close to rich shellfish fields, which could be found in the intertidal zone on those coasts. You can still find these there, although pollution and abuse has reduced the size of the bounty. We know that because of the shellfish middens, or piles of brown mussel, or what's known as perna perna, to call it by its scientific name, which can be found at the Imzonjani settlements. Which is really interesting for another reason. The people of this region now, the Zulu, are not known as fish eaters. It was culturally frowned upon, possibly as a mechanism to separate them from earlier people who they regarded as inferior. Of course, this has changed again in more modern times as people urbanize, and some have learned to enjoy tuna, salmon, and so on. But it goes to show how formulating a theory of what history is exclusively based on contemporary rituals and values can be a bad idea. It's really useful for modern politicians, though, to argue that this or that is not what our people do, but they have no idea, really, about what our people did. These early first millennium Iron Age Umzunjani people along the KwaZulu coast we're deploying a slash-and-burn technique to clear the land. The people burned back the vegetation, then used the ash as fertilizer and planted their sorghum and millet. However, sandy soils generally do not allow for multi-year planting without significant amounts of added fertilizer, so that accounts for the people moving after a year or two of slashing and burning, and then they did it again. There is a fascinating correlation we have discovered 
Many of these sites are also based close to Imzonjani sites further inland that specialized in iron ore production. Some of the earliest Silverlees pottery settlements in Swaziland and parts of the Mpumalanga escarpment were also selected for the high rainfall, as well as iron ore works nearby. Rain for the crops, iron for the tools and weapons. It all makes sense, doesn't it? Ceramic experts have also tracked the use of pottery near Brudestrum, west of Pretoria, and in the Machalisberg Valley, far away in Gauteng province. There, Mzonjani communities had spread over the escarpment and well inland by 500 AD, and yet they did not move any further south than present-day Durban. So what of the second branch of the Urewe tradition called Nkope? These were people who lived further inland and were found from southern Tanzania through Malawi into eastern Zambia and into Zimbabwe around 400 AD. There's not a lot of argument about what they were up to because we've dug into their ancient settlements and found amazing artifacts and we're pretty sure about what they were doing. For example, we know that one of the later phases of movement called the Zizu saw the Nkobi tradition arriving at the Shashilimpopa Valley in 800 AD and these people were after something very specific, ivory. The East Coast Indian Ocean traders from Arabia and Asia demanded huge amounts of ivory and these people were elephant hunters of note. 1,200 years ago, hunters from the Nkobi tradition were moving across the southern African region, hunting elephants and sending the ivory back to the East Coast, a journey of hundreds and sometimes thousands of kilometers. Their settlements stretch all the way into eastern Botswana, for example. This lucrative business survived for the next 1,000 years until the arrival of the firearm destroyed entire herds of elephants and changed trading networks. Then another western strain of pottery has also been tracked as the people carrying these ceramics started heading south. Archaeologists call this tradition the Kulundu. These found their way into the region from the northwest, with some discovered at the small town of Benfica near Huambo in central Angola. By 400 AD, these pots were being produced locally around Leidenberg in Mpumalanga, while the technique had also made its way into KwaZulu-Natal by 900 AD. Unlike the Imzunjani, however, which was distributed only as far south as Durban, people using the Kulundu pots pushed all the way to present-day East London. But the use of this type of ancient pottery died out between late 900 and 1300 AD, and that was directly associated with the arrival of Tswana speakers who took over the land at the time. There are places where these two pottery traditions overlap, where stylistic continuities can be found. The people working the clay or trading the pots used both styles at times. They were in contact with migrating people after all. The Mzunjani and Kulundu technology peoples were interacting. We don't have written history for this period, and yet what this all means is that the established earlier farmers didn't just simply disappear, but there remains an all-elusive question. Why did these Kulundu-based people end up in the middle of KwaZulu-Natal, and how? Fortunately, we again have quite a bit of science to back up what we think happened. Firstly, there were more Kulundu than Mzunjani, and it's believed the Kulundu were probably more advanced in other ways, socially and politically. Their ways replaced the ways of the earlier Mzunjani, as is the way with history and migrations. A group of people with newer technology and more powerful networks subsume the existing group when migration takes place. There's another bit of science to throw at this conundrum. The climate. It appears that when the Kulundu arrived from the north, 
Rainfall patterns had been disturbed and settlement choices along the coast and the escarpment reflect the most optimal use of rainfall areas. And we know that there were more Kulundu because they built more settlements than the Mzunjani. An accurate and yet simple definition. So by 500 AD, early Iron Age farmers were well established south of the Limpopo River. They were also constrained by the summer rainfall areas of South Africa. If you head off to my site, desmondlatham.blog, you'll find episode 3 posts with a map of the early Iron Age settlements. They clearly favoured the eastern coastal zones through inland to the lowlands north of Pretoria, then northwest over the headwaters of the Limpopo River, across Botswana, through to the Kubanga River highlands in Angola. What is also clear is that these early Iron Age people avoided the higher grasslands south of the Machalisberg Mountains, where Johannesburg is today, as well as the grassy highlands and bushfoot valleys of KwaZulu-Natal. They were basically constrained by the fact that they did not innovate their main planted crops, so that means they had to stop migrating at East London in the south or change the type of grains they were planting. South of there, the rainfall pattern shifts from summer to year-round rainfall. The domesticated plants they were growing, millets and sorghum for example, required 500 millimetres of rain with a minimum of 350 millimetres during the growing season. There was another reason why these crops are found in this fairly narrow strip in South Africa, nighttime temperatures. They need an average of around 15 degrees centigrade annually, which means the high ground of the Haarfeld is out of the question. The farmers also faced no real pressure to innovate. Over hundreds of years, there just weren't enough people to pressurize them demographically. There was enough land and space, so they moved around the warmer coastal zones and further inland at lower altitudes. We've heard that our earliest farmers were growing sorghum and millet, but they also planted pearl millet as well as finger millet, cow peas and ground beans. The other bit of kitchen utensil found constantly through these settlements was the characteristic early Iron Age grindstone to process cereals. We also have grain pits. They were growing enough to create a surplus and thus store their all-important grain. Metalworking was taking place at these sites and many settlements were located close to rocks that held iron ore. Slowly, the remains of cattle begin appearing in the archaeological record. So let's sit back for a moment and imagine what we're talking about here. These are sedentary villages characterized by domestic cereal production, livestock and iron technology. These tools and way of life arrived intact around this time, carried by new people who migrated to South Africa from Central Africa and gradually replaced the existing cultures. The Kulundu arrived quite swiftly in historical terms and then set up shop amongst the existing Imzunjani. We must now deal with the crucial question of social structure and history. What were these people doing and how? We have their technology, their food, their structures, settlements, iron making. But what language did they speak? How did they exchange goods? How was society structured? Was there a king, a chief, ruled by a committee? There are a few answers, unfortunately, but we have some clues. During the early Iron Age, the central product that emerged as the most significant was beef. For people around the world, the control of cattle during the Iron Age was part of managing treasure. If you had a huge herd, you were likely to be rich, whether Teutonic or Brit or South African. And your followers loved you because every now and again you'd slaughter a few cows for a feast. Trade was conducted in value based on the number of head as a bartering tool. And the organization of these earliest South African settlements eventually revolved around cattle to a large extent. 
There's a social model that archaeologists use to explain this, and it's called the central cattle pattern. This classification is used in Southern Africa and is predominantly noted in the Nguni-speaking ethnographies that begin moving across Southern Africa by the end of the first millennium AD. The central cattle pattern comes directly from digging into the past, the ground. We have found that cattle as a core validation of power and money had and have a symbolic importance to groups of people. From white farmers of South Africa to the Sudanese herders of today, Money and power is stored in the vast herds of powerful landowners or clan leaders. Cattle buyers in ancient times were located in the center of settlements. Physically, the center of a settlement is its heart and soul, the most protected area from lions and other predators. We also know that cattle are the preserve of men throughout southern Africa. The buyer is a male space and linked to a male court or assembly of important men. These ancient Iron Age settlements had cattle buyers in the center, as well as graveyards of important people. We know this because we've dug them up, and we know they were important because of the artifacts buried with them. Furthermore, there were also granaries based in the center of these settlements as well. So, in the central area of these long-gone villages, we would have found cattle in a rock-walled or wooden palisaded paddock, and close by the underground grain storage pit, then the graves a safe distance away so there's no underground seepage. Like kings buried under the floors of churches, these graves placed inside an important social area are not by chance. So what of the women living in these little settlements? What were they doing? It's believed they were doing what they do now in a general sense, managing the day-to-day routines of water gathering, wood cutting, food preparation and child minding. By the second millennium after 1000 AD, these central cattle pattern settlements are mainly linked to ancestral Nguni and Swana, as well as Sutu speakers. We'll hear more about that later. Between 250 AD and 500 AD, there are far fewer cattle bones recovered from Imzunjani sites than after 1000 AD. Livestock before that period were mainly sheep and goats. Imagine then how people migrated across southern Africa. The Iron Age homesteaders are slashing and burning, and slowly over time, the landscape changes, making it more likely that cattle could be supported, which begins to take place by 1000 AD. As these people developed on the South African geography, their social and technological development advanced. By the end of the first millennium, iron smelting was taking place in seclusion outside the settlement. The slag has been found, the forges, and in some cases, bits of bellow. The link between cattle and bride wealth, or libola, as we know it now, is believed to have started around this period. Regional relationships were also growing through the early Iron Age period. Goods were traded over hundreds and sometimes thousands of kilometers. They passed from one region to another in various ways, conflict and warfare perhaps, as well as peaceful bartering. Some of the earliest farmer settlements were quite large, those in the periphery smaller, suggesting regional hierarchy. Ceramic masks and figurines crop up in the larger settlements, which means ritual and initiation and the possible correlation with increased power. The Leidenberg heads from Mpumalanga are the most dramatic examples of such ritual objects. I've got pictures of the Leidenberg heads in my post at desmondlatham.blog. They're large and unusual. Other goods found include ivory, beads and cosmetic powder, which reflects power and hierarchy once more. What is exciting is the discovery 
that these regional powerhouses of the time, we're talking 1,000 years ago, were starting to exercise control over far-reaching trade. As I said, the Shashe Limpopo people begin specializing in commodities by 800 AD, and ivory was the main product of interest. Ivory was delivered to a series of East African entrepôts or ports, which in turn were networked into the wider Indian Ocean area, at least by 500 AD, but some believe it was taking place far earlier, and eventually the networks grew across southern Africa as a whole. A growing number of exotic glass beads start showing up in the archaeological record in Zimbabwe and the Limpopo areas around this time. Islamic pottery from the mid-900 period has been dug up as far south as Kwagandaganda area of the lower Tugela River in KwaZulu-Natal, which must have been the southernmost limit of this sort of trade. We also have farmer sites in the Nkoma area of Botswana, as well as the Tsordilo Hills dating from 500 AD all the way to 1200 AD, and they feature a large amount of iron and copper jewellery from 200 kilometers away. This shows that the amount of exotic material formed a dominant role in these settlements, just as trade has always. Regional exchange networks grew deep into the Kalahari hinterland and through to the Okavango Delta, with the pastoralists managing herds of cattle. We've also unearthed ivory, fish and freshwater shellfish in middens in that area too. At Nkoma in modern Botswana, settlements can be found dating back to the later Stone Age 2,000 years ago, running all the way to 250 AD. Hunter-gatherers there were embedded in these pastoral settlements, which were also acquiring wild animals and working their skins. Were the hunter-gatherers enslaved, or did they work willingly? What was the relationship between these earliest people and the newly arrived? There's much debate now about the nature of this relationship. Just because we find both cultures side by side in the same village doesn't mean one was subjugated. But the earliest oral traditions and the stories of the Kong-speaking clans of this region and their engravings and paintings show the relationship was complex and changed over time. And it was sometimes violent and oppressive if the paintings are anything to go by. The earliest farmers were pioneers and living on a landscape they were domesticating for the first time in the landscape's history. These people subdued the land simplified it based on their planting and herding needs. But they were also creating an ideological imprint in the cultural sense, as archaeologist Simon Hall points out. So to what extent did these newcomers learn about the landscape from the existing hunter-gatherers, the San and Koi? It would not have been necessarily destructive because the population density was still fairly low. There would have been little competition over their first-choice locations. Early farmers did not saturate the land in the summer rainfall area and the bushfield habitats with settlements, nor did they drift over it like a blanket. Early hunter-gatherers would not have been unduly disrupted by these early farmers, and of course, they also had the option of retreating from the areas being farmed anyway. Very similar things happened later in South Africa as the Khoian San moved away from the Griqua, then the Boers, and finally the English as they herded their sheep onto the land that became fixed in ownership terms. By the end of the first millennium, hunter-gatherers in the Tugela Basin intensified their use of rock shelters within the valley bushveld areas, and that was at the same time that farmers began to hug the local coastline. Along the Limpopo River, there are only a few caves and rock shelters that these hunter-gatherers began using after the arrival of the farmers on the plains below, through the first 1,000 years AD, for example. So from both oral tradition and more contemporary sources, we know that Bantu speakers were generally ambivalent 
about the earliest people, the San. On the one hand, stories refer to the first people as animals and buffoonish, profligate and immoral fools who were considered as children by these early Bantu farmers, Cain and Abel. These settled farmers underpinned their lives with stability. They had homesteads. The sand did not, and oral tradition holds that the sand were the antithesis of what these first farmers thought was moral and human. On the other hand, the oral traditions refer to the sand as living in the realms of witches and wild spirits, wild and free on the landscape, living in the presence of God or their creator. Hunter-gatherers appear in the Bantu origin myths as implicated in fertility and reproduction. They are recognized for their power over nature and amongst Nguni speakers for their power over rain. With the sound of sand-induced thunder in my ears, it's time to end this week's podcast. Next week, we'll hear about the arrival of livestock in South Africa and the first dogs which arrived here around 1,500 years ago. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have time. Episode 4 notes are on my website, desmondlatham.blog, as well as images and maps, while you can also contact me through my Twitter feed, at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.